Hey there. Who enjoyed watching the Olympics last month? Well, at the Baker House, we found some fun sports to watch from the couch. Uh, the swimming, rowing, hockey, uh, the skateboarding category was lots of fun. But there was one sport in particular that grabbed our interest. The speed rock climbing. Did anyone see that? Wow, that was incredible. For those who haven't seen it before, there's a short clip playing now up on the screen. It's a sport where they literally run up a 15 metre rock climbing wall in six seconds. To put that in perspective, a few weeks back we had our floors sanded at home and for a couple of days this rickety old ladder became our front door. I can tell you it took me much longer than six seconds to climb the three metres upstairs. 15 metres up a climbing wall in six seconds is an amazing feat. Now it may be a short climb, but these athletes don't just rock up on the day and compete. They spend years preparing and training both physically and mentally to know exactly where to put their hands and feet during the climb. They stand at the starting line, staring up at the wall with the finish line in sight. With single-minded determination, they literally bound up the wall during their event with their thousands of hours of training on display. A short race, but one they've worked hard to prepare for. We're nearing the end of our series through Hebrews, a book written to address drift. That slow turning away from God and back to some other thing. Hebrews encourages us to take our faith seriously. In chapter 11 last week, we looked at some of the Old Testament greats who lived by faith. And then at the start of chapter 12, our author helps us again to picture our own Christian life as a race. For context, I'll read from verses 1 to 3, as that really sets up our passage today. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Our passage today from Hebrews looks at the topic of running heavenward, the Christian life as a race. The race is not so much a sprint up a wall like the speed rock climber, but more like an endurance marathon that we run with perseverance. Runners giving everything they have to reach the finish line. With this picture of an athlete throwing off anything that slows them down so they can run the race set before them, we pause and consider. You and I are in this race. Much like the speed rock climber or the marathon runner, each with years of preparation and training so that they can go the distance, today we ask, in your Christian race, how's your training going? Are we preparing for what is to come? 
Today we'll look at this passage from Hebrews 12 in three sections. Firstly, verses 4 to 11, trained by discipline. Then verses 12 to 17, training in community. And verses 18 to 28, approaching the finish line. So from verse 4 now, trained by discipline. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. For our readers then who were struggling, and for us now, we're given some perspective. Life might be hard, but not yet hard to the point of death. In this race, as we live by faith, we are to expect opposition like King Jesus, like those who lived by faith in chapter 11. This verse speaks of the adversity we meet as we seek to live God's way. It's the struggle against sin in this world, both internally and externally. Well, maybe that's some really blunt perspective, but our writer immediately offers some encouragement in verses 5 and 6, quoting from Proverbs 3, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. I'm not sure we would describe discipline as an encouragement. But here our author does. To make light of is to care little about. To lose heart is to get slack. So those of us who care little or get slack when it comes to discipline, well, it turns out we're missing an encouragement. The Lord disciplines those he loves. He rebukes everyone who he accepts as a son. Now the word son here is not to be skipped over as old language, but for the original reader, a son was the heir, set to inherit the family estate. So the Lord disciplines his heirs, his children, who belong to his family. The wonderful, timeless truth here is that belonging to God goes with being trained by God. Belonging and discipline go together. So we endure hardship as discipline, knowing that God is treating us as his children, his heirs. The Lord's discipline is a mark that we belong to him, that he cares enough to train us in his ways. That's the encouragement in hardship. In verses 9 to 10, we reflect on our earthly discipline, our human fathers doing what they thought best. And what's on view here is proper parental discipline. But I wonder if in our current generation, we read this differently. To the original readers, it is unthinkable that a father would not discipline his child. How abhorrent, how unloving it would be to withhold proper parental training and instruction. And yet, we live in a time where we affirm to the extreme. We're told we have limitless potential, that we can do anything we put our minds to, that difficult things are to be avoided at all costs because we deserve so much from life. Are we not loved enough to be disciplined 
to live with consequences, to experience hardship. In our generation, discipline is on the nose. It's a harsh word and it's not often associated with love. These days we're more likely to discipline as a last resort when we've had enough, when we're forced to step in. But here we read proper parental discipline is the loving thing to do. Thinking of our earthly discipline, the second half of verse 10 is a lesser to greater statement. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share his holiness. As flawed as we are, we discipline our children as best we know how. But God, all-knowing, sovereign, powerful and loving, disciplines us for our good so that we would grow in holiness. This is a wonderful picture. Verse 11 helpfully points out that discipline does not feel pleasant at the time. But we look back on it later and we see what the Lord has done through whatever hard time we've been through. Do you know this to be true? Have you looked back on hard things and seen how God has grown you through them? Pleasant? No. But fruitful? Yeah. When life gets difficult, we're tempted to pray, Lord, take this hard thing away. Hebrews tells us to ask the Lord who suffered to the point of death, the Lord who sympathizes with us in our suffering, the one who is willing and able. We look to him to do what he wants with our heart, to prepare us for what's to come. It is because God loves us, it is because we belong to him that he trains us. And as a coach might use a whistle and a hard training program to prepare an athlete for what is to come, God trains us through adversity, through suffering, through the hard stuff of life. So we can be encouraged when we see God training us by discipline to grow us up in holiness. Our second point for today, this sanctifying training is communal. So again, picturing the race set before us with Jesus in mind at the finish, hurdles along the way on the track, training us in holiness. We now encouraged to keep striving together. This is not a solo sport. If we're going to avoid the drift, if we're going to go the distance, if we're going to clear the hurdles, then we're going to need to do this together with other Christians. Look with me at verse 12 and 13. Therefore strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. The focus here is very much on the corporate. We strengthen our feeble arms and weak knees. We make level paths for our feet so that others would benefit. It's not that any of us are particularly impressive athletes either. Feeble and weak, in fact. But we live in peace with each other and we grow in holiness. As what we do affects those around us. 
Some of you know we have a couple of stationary bikes set up downstairs in our rumpus. And sometimes I jump on a bike for an online spin class. I work up a sweat and being a numbers man, I track my heart rate and all the stats. (laughs) Occasionally, someone jumps on the bike next to me. And I tell you what, when that happens, my heart rate stats all improve out of sight. The idea of having someone next to me on the journey somehow brings out my best. The image here in Hebrews is a big pack race. Everyone on the track going around and around, encouraging all those nearby to throw off the sin that entangles so that we all make the distance. It doesn't matter if it's your first lap around or your 80th. We have a responsibility to each other. This challenges the view that we can just turn up to church or small group when it suits us. I'm turning up for me. No, we turn up for each other. This also challenges the view that our battle with sin is purely internal. That I alone live with the consequences of my actions. No, our sin affects those around us. Verse 15, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. We need each other so that we don't drift away from the faith in Jesus. We need each other so that we all together receive the grace offered in Christ. It's not that we can lose God's grace if we have it, but for the good of those around us. We want to see as many people on the track running heavenward as possible. The bitter root in verse 15 is a reference from Deuteronomy 29, and I'm going to read from it now in context as it really explains what this bitter root is about. So from Deuteronomy 29, You yourselves know how we lived in Egypt and how we passed through the countries on the way here. You saw among them their detestable images of idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold. Make sure there is no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today whose hearts turn away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Make sure there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison. When such a person hears the words of this oath and invoke a blessing on themselves, thinking, I will be safe, even though I persist in going my own way, They will bring disaster on the watered land as well as the dry. The Lord will never be willing to forgive them. His wrath and zeal will burn against them. All the curses written in this book will fall on them, and the Lord will blot out their names from under heaven. You see, this bitter root is classic drift. Hearts turning away from God and towards the things of this world. It's a heart saying, yeah, I'm okay with God, but I'll just keep living however I want. It's complacent presumption, but with a secret treasuring of sin. And the results are devastating. When this grows up, this sort of bitter root will cause trouble and defile many. You won't just bring yourself down, but others too. See to it then that we look out for each other. 
that we seek to avoid the drift together. Our second warning here, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau comes from Genesis. Esau was heir to Isaac. He was set to inherit all the family treasure in Abraham's line. But hungry one day, Esau sold his birthright to his brother Jacob for some bread and lentil stew. What was right in front of him, he had to have. What he wanted, he took. And it cost him his inheritance. This is a cautionary tale against sexual immorality and godlessness. The heart attitude that says, I'll take what I want when I want it, no matter the cost. This attitude grows up and the consequences are devastating. Esau threw away his inheritance because he was hungry one day. See to it that among our number, no one sells their inheritance in Jesus for something so cheap and so temporary. See to it. We're in this together. Our training is communal. We come now to our third section, approaching the finish line. So once more picturing the race set before us with Jesus in mind at the finish, hurdles training us in holiness along the way as a big group pack race, running together and looking out for one another to avoid the traps. We now read a vivid picture of Mount Sinai, the place where the law was given to the Israelites of old, and of Mount Zion, the heavenly city that awaits. Notice the start of verse 18. You have not come to Mount Sinai. And verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion. The two images are contrasted for us and they could not be two more different destinations. Read with me verse 18. And as we do, try to picture this in your mind. The enormity of what we're reading. What this would have felt like, looked like, sounded like, even smelt like. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was being commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. This is how the law was given to the people. The law that condemns, given by a pure and holy God. To meet God in this way was absolutely terrifying. Sometimes we're quick to forget what grace saves us from. It is God's undeserved favour that we have not come to Mount Sinai and the law that condemns us. Look with me at the contrast in verse 22. And again, let this picture wash over you as we read. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, 
to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You have come. In Jesus, with our sins washed clean by his sprinkled blood, we have already come to this place, now partially and in the end of the race fully. If you trust in King Jesus, your name is written in heaven. You stand in the presence of the judge of all, in the perfect righteousness of Jesus The contrast here is stark. God's grace is immense. And we should not forget what we are saved from in Jesus and where we enter in on account of him. Like the marathon runner, it is about crossing the finish line in a grueling race, running hour upon hour. The finish line is the goal for every competitor. When the first athlete crosses the line, the rest don't all stop and say, oh, well, I didn't come first, so I may as well give up now. No. They press on to the finish line with endurance, and the end is firmly in mind as they go. Hebrews reminds us that the heavenly city is our destination, and we press on with endurance towards it. Notice the difference also between the seen and the unseen. Verse 18, the mountain that can be touched. Verse 22, compared to the heavenly city filled with angels in joyful assembly. As we run this race, keeping the end in mind, the unseen is more real more permanent and greater than the things of this world as we run heavenward. How much do you think about heaven as your ultimate home? Does your future reality shape the way that you live now? Are you preparing for what's to come? Notice also the God who speaks Firstly, from Mount Sinai, the terrifying voice of God. And then in verse 24, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, who speaks a better word. The God of the Bible speaks, and it is of urgent importance that we listen if we are to be prepared for what's to come. There are two destinations in life. Judgment at the hands of the living God without Jesus, option one. Or with Jesus, option two. So in a world full of distractions, how do we prioritise listening to Jesus who speaks? Opening the Bible instead of the news feed. Considering Jesus at length with a soft heart instead of rushing our reading to get on with our day. Living each day with the invisible realities first in our minds and not consumed by the things that we can see, touch, and taste. We prepare for what is to come by listening to Jesus who speaks. There's an implication in our passage today that someone can come along to church, can turn up to small group, 
can read their Bible and even pray, but not listen to Jesus, to not accept him as Lord and Savior, to fall short of the grace that it's on offer in him. If that is you, and today's passage has prompted you to explore this further, I'd love to talk with you after. Or perhaps you do trust Jesus as King, but maybe you've been drifting of late, not listening intently. If that is you, tell someone and ask them to pray for you. Verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? God promises one day to shake the earth and the heavens. All that will remain is the unshakable kingdom of Jesus and those who will be found in him. So as a final call to action for Christians running heavenward, let's read these last two verses and then pray in response. Verses 28 and 29. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this challenging passage from Hebrews. Lord, help us to take our faith seriously. Help us to press on in you in the race that you have marked out for us, relying on you and not on ourselves. We thank you for the encouragement that you treat us as your children that you discipline us because you love us. Lord, help us to endure hardship as discipline and may we one day look back and thank you for it as we see you grow us up in holiness. Lord, help us to look out for each other, to watch out for the drift. Help us to see that how we live affects others. Help us here at Begara Presbyterian to be a community that encourages one another along in you. Lord, we thank you that you are living and active, that you are powerful and gracious, that you will one day shake the heavens and the earth and all that will remain will be your kingdom in Jesus. Lord, we thank you that we belong to you. That for those whose trust is in you, we belong to the kingdom that cannot be shaken. Lord, help us to live each day with the unseen realities of your power and majesty first in our minds. Help us not to be distracted by all that we can touch and see that we would not be consumed by your creation rather than you, the creator. Lord, capture our hearts for you, that we might run heavenwards with endurance. In your great name we pray. Amen. <laughs>